Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us for another week. Are you ready for a story? I am ready for a story. Story time with Christy and Melissa. (laughs) Melissa got here two hours ago to record and we have been chatting it up. It's always good times. That's why we're so happy when we tell these murder stories. Yeah. You know how I feel about couple killers. Yes. They're star-crossed lovers. Well, they've got something crossed. These two. It might be some wires. (laughs) That's right. Something is definitely crossed in these two. But I'm excited to tell it. My last case was about a romantic relationship gone wrong. But in the spirit of it still being Valentine's Month, I thought I would do a case about lonely hearts. Ooh. Because not every person has a Valentine. If you are one of those people, this case may make you feel a little better about being single because our victims in this case made the fatal mistake of searching for love in all the wrong places. Oh, no. Who's been there and done that? Not me. (laughs) Yeah, not you. (laughs) Melissa married her high school school sweetheart. Even grade school, actually. Yeah, that's why I was like, it's not high school sweetheart. She married her grade school sweetheart. Today, we're going to talk about the infamous Lonely Hearts killers. A Lonely Heart killer is someone who preys on those seeking love through personal ads in the newspaper, either by placing an ad or responding to one. So in today's sense, this would be like finding your victims on a dating app. So on Tinder, they're looking for victims? Oh, absolutely. That happens. Oh. Haven't you heard any of those cases? No. Remember, I married my grade school sweetheart. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Unfortunately, it is a way for people to find their victims. Raymond and Martha are a killer couple who did just this. They used the Lonely Hearts section of the newspaper to find vulnerable and unsuspecting victims to take advantage of and ultimately murder. So does this remind you of any other cases we've done? Yes. This has major Balgunas vibes. It absolutely does. I thought of her while I was writing this one, too. Yeah. She's like the original. I guess she wasn't the original because it happened at that time, too. But she used the newspaper to find her victims. That's right. But Mm -hmm. she was like 1800s, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're going a little bit more recent. More contemporary? Well, kind of. It's like 1940s, this one. So we're not quite into the Tinder app age. No. So this is the in-between Belle and dating apps. Okay. I will talk first a little bit about both of their backgrounds before they met and started their murderous love affair. And I thought, let's start with Martha, you know, ladies first and all. Martha Jewel Seabrook was born on May 6, 1920 in Milton, Florida. She had one brother and three sisters. Martha did not have an easy childhood. Oh. Yeah. She reportedly had a glandular problem that made her gain weight. She also went through puberty quite early, causing her to be fully developed with an adult sex drive by the age of 10. Oh, wow. So I don't know if that's connected with the glandular issues that she was having, but she was going through both. Sometime during her childhood, Martha claimed that her brother had raped her. She told her mother what had happened, and in response, her mother gave her a vicious beating and told Martha that she was the one responsible for what her brother had done. What? Yeah. Why was she responsible when he had done it? I don't know. I don't know. This is back into, this would have been like probably 30s or 20s, right? And her 10-year-old has this fully developed woman's body, and so maybe she's blaming it on that. So was she diagnosed with this glandular issue? Yes, she was diagnosed with a glandular problem is all that it said. It didn't say what specifically. 
Martha's mother would continue to torment her as well as belittle her for being overweight. The kids at school would also bully her about her looks. And she gets a really bad rap for being homely in most accounts that I read. But I think she does have some attractive features for a dirtbag. You showed me a picture of her and I didn't think that she was too, like... She's not um, ugly, ugly. Like, you know. <laughs> not that anybody's really ugly, ugly. <laughs> but we are going to talk about this a lot throughout the case because people really seem to fixate on her weight. And I think a lot of those remarks are solely aimed because of that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Which is unfortunate. Let a girl be curvy. And I'm saying that because I'm a curvy girl. <laughs> yeah. Be whatever you are, actually. That's right. If you're skinny, you're skinny. If you're curvy, you're curvy. Yeah. Martha would later report that she had attempted suicide many times throughout her life, starting in her youth. After finishing grade school, Martha studied to become a nurse. However, she had trouble finding a job because no one would hire an overweight nurse. What? Yeah. I read she even graduated nursing school at the top of her class, but still had a hard time getting employed. Eventually, Martha found a job at a funeral home. She was an undertaker's assistant and would prepare the female bodies for burial. That doesn't make any sense to me. What right? does her weight have to do with anything of her capabilities? It shouldn't. But this would be like if she was born 1920, this is probably getting close to 1940. Mm. Maybe hyper fixated on that. I don't know. I didn't live in the 40s, but think even how fixated we are right now on our looks. Attractive people do have a leg up in the world. I guess sometimes it's just hard for us to understand what it would have been like back then. Like I would never be passed over for a job now in nursing. Right. If I was overweight. Yeah. Or at least you would hope not. But sadly, I think that happens sometimes, right? Probably even still today that happens in certain jobs. Martha decided to quit that job and move to California. There she worked as a nurse at an army hospital. While in California, Martha met a soldier and fell pregnant. It is rumored that this was a one-night stand. Martha wanted to marry the father of her child, but that was the last thing that he wanted to do. In fact, he had attempted to end his own life by jumping into the California Bay. He survived, but never had anything to do with Martha or their future child. And I thought, can you imagine having a man rather kill himself than want to marry you? Maybe he had other issues going on. I can't imagine that was the sole reason. But I don't think that could be really good for the self-esteem. No. She can't get a nursing job because she's too overweight. And now this man gets her pregnant on a one night stand and would rather jump Jump off off the California Bay. (laughs) Yeah, that's not an esteem booster. No, it's not. So alone and pregnant, Martha moved back to Florida. Since coming home pregnant in those days while being unwed would have been heavily frowned upon, mm-hmm. Martha made up the story that she was married, but that her husband was killed in the Pacific campaign, leaving her alone with child. And this was quite an elaborate lie. I read that she bought a fake wedding band and at first told the townspeople that her husband would be joining them when he had completed his service. But later she sent herself a telegraph saying that her husband had been killed. Oh, she's quite the storyteller then. She is. She's like, oh, how am I going to explain this one? You can't explain away that bump in your belly, right? No, but she's top of her class. So it's not like she's. Yeah. Yeah. And the people in her town ate this story up. Everyone felt so sorry for her to the point of even publishing a story about it in the local paper. Oh, wow. Because now she's this army wife widow who's pregnant. So the town was really helping her out. What a way to turn her fortunes around, though. Hey, right. From being like the town outcast to now being the town hero. Yeah. Where everyone feels sorry for her and wants to help her. Where if she had just come home pregnant and unwed, like you said, she would have been an outcast. Yeah. Totally frowned upon. Martha gave birth in 1944 to a baby girl and named her Willa Dean. And I kind of love that name. Isn't Willa it Dean? cute? Willa Dean. That is cute. And soon after, she started to date a man named Alfred Beck, who was a Pensacola bus driver. 
It didn't take long until Martha was again pregnant, and the pair quickly did get married. Sadly, their marriage didn't last long, and they divorced only six months later. Mm. Martha then gave birth to her son, Anthony. Martha decided to keep her last name Beck, and that is how we know her today as the serial killer Martha Beck. Mm. With a new baby and a small child and no job, Martha found herself escaping by reading a large amount of romance magazines and books, as well as binging romantic movies. We've all done that from time to time when you want to escape real life, right? Oh, for sure. To lose yourself in a book or a movie? Yeah. For me, it might be a horror movie, but she was into (laughs) the romance. But it seemed like Martha was in love with the idea of being in love. Mm. Martha was again able to find work as a nurse in 1946. She got a job at the Pensacola Hospital for Children. About being a nurse, Martha said, quote, I chose this profession without thought of self and want to prepare myself for this profession, not for material gains, but for the purpose of aiding humanity and rendering service to others. And I thought too bad she couldn't have stuck to just helping people instead of turning into a ruthless killer. Yeah, that seems really altruistic for a serial killer. Right? Like what a jump. (laughs) But we know nurses do kill. That's true. We do. (laughs) The next year, she placed an ad in a Lonely Hearts column. There was rumor that this started out as a joke or a prank by her co-workers, but that Martha decided to just go for it. She truly wanted to find love. Remember, she's in love with this idea yes. of love. Well, I'm thinking it always works out in the books and the movies. Right. So why not do it? Yeah, place an ad in the Lonely Hearts column. Yeah. Sure. However, in an unfortunate twist of fate, dirtbag Raymond Fernandez would be the one to answer her ad. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about Raymond. And no, in this case, not everybody loves Raymond. <laughs> Raymond Martinez Fernandez was born to Spanish parents in Hakalau, Hawaii on December 17, 1914. When Raymond was around three years old, his family moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut. Raymond's parents were described as proud people, and it was said that they were disappointed in Raymond's appearance. Oh, why? He had a smaller build, and his father wished for a son who was stronger than Raymond. Oh, isn't that sad? Yeah, it is, actually. Be nice, dads. It's okay if your boys are small. They'll have strengths in other areas. That's right. Brute strength isn't the only thing that matters. No, and he grows into it. He doesn't stay small forever. Could you imagine having that opinion of your child? Like, oh, you're puny. Yeah. I wish I had a better one. Yeah. I wish my son wasn't such a weakling. (laughs) Thanks, dad. It's not a good environment to grow up in. No, it's not. When Raymond was a teenager, he moved to Spain to work on his uncle's farm. While in Spain at age 20, he met and married a woman named Encarnacion Robles. Hopefully I got that right. I didn't. No, that's fine. You did. I was thinking back to somebody that posted on one of those like true crime or crime time, whatever yeah. Facebook pages of like, can we just have somebody that says, like yes. tells us how to pronounce all these names we've only ever read? It's like, here, dear, this is how you say it. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. We try our best. Him and his Spanish wife had four children together. Bad idea. Four children is a lot. (laughs) Melissa has four children. (laughs) No, it's a good idea. (laughs) It is. She has really wonderful children. I love them all. They lived in a village named Orgiva, and it was said that Raymond had now grown into a well-built, handsome man who was gentle and well-liked. Oh. Raymond served in Spain's merchant marines, but then became a spy for the British intelligence during World War II. Oh, that's quite the occupation. Right? The Defense Security Office in Gibraltar said he, quote, was entirely loyal to the Allied cause and carried out his duties, which were sometimes difficult and dangerous, extremely well. Oh, wow. I guess it didn't matter if he was small when he was a child, Dad. <laughs> yeah. haha, Dad. <laughs> but mind you, look what he turns into. So <laughs> we speak too soon. But he was doing pretty well at the beginning. Mm. Betchy, he has a whole bunch of pent up rage because he was teased because he was small. <laughs> 
Well, and looked down on by his dad. Yeah. Nobody wants daddy issues. Nope. When are daddies going to learn? <laughs> Don't cause daddy issues in your children. <laughs> Mind you, mommy issues are just as bad oh, in serial yes. killers. Maybe even worse. One day, Raymond decided that he wanted to try and live the American dream and hopped on a ship that was U.S. bound. What about his kids? Well, I'm just about to tell you that. He left his wife and children in Spain and never looked back. What? Basically abandoning them all. So he's a selfish dirtbag. Oh. He's just like, I want to live the American dream. That is a dirtbag move. I'm going to get on this ship. But as karma would have it, while on this ship, a steel hatch fell on top of Raymond's head. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I thought this was a good idea. And the universe is like, no, son, <laughs> you don't abandon your wife and four children. Serves him right. The steel hatch fractured his skull and significantly damaged his frontal lobe. Oh, so he had some serious head trauma. He did. Once the ship docked, he spent December of 1945 to March of 1946 in the hospital recovering. Conveniently, he needs a nurse. He does need a nurse. <laughs> but that's not how this happens. Oh. <laughs> but that would have been a good segue. But she's going to put in her personal ad that she's a nurse and that's going to attract him to her. No. Oh, well, dang. it does, but not for taking care of him. Okay. <laughs> he spends three months in the hospital, recovers and gets out. <laughs> he just recovers. He's just all better after a frontal lobe injury. People did say that this injury changed him as a person, affecting his sexual desires as well as his personality. It made him moodier and quick to anger, which can happen with brain injuries and can be common amongst serial killers. True. So there is a lot of speculation if this brain injury had something to do with what would happen in the future with Raymond. Oh, interesting. And so how did they know the difference of his sexual drives? Because now he's in America in a completely different atmosphere with people that don't know him. I think he reported that. Okay. But frontal lobe injuries specifically can affect learning, reasoning, and logical brain functions, which seem to be true for Raymond. Yeah. And that's why I'm like, but what about the sex drive? Yeah, said it totally affected his sexual desires. So did it heighten them or lessen yes. them? It heightened them. Well, I guess if you have your limbic system pushing sexual drives and now you have no frontal lobe to downplay that, then I could see it being heightened. Yeah. Interesting. After recovering from his injury, Raymond was arrested for theft and sent to prison for a year at the federal penitentiary in Tallahassee, Florida. Ooh, geographically, they're getting closer. They are. While incarcerated, he had a cellmate from Haiti introduce him to voodooism, Vodun in particular, and black magic. It sounded like he converted to these practices. He would later say that it was the black magic that made him irresistible to women. Isn't there a song about that old black magic? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I'm sure there is. Old black magic has me in a spell. Old black magic that you weave so well. Those icy fingers up and down my spine. That old witchcraft when your eyes met mine. Ooh. So that black magic. And that's going to come back into our story. In 1946, Raymond moved in with his sister in Brooklyn, New York. He started to write to women he met through the Lonely Hearts Club. He would make them think he was romantically interested in them and then swindle them out of money, jewelry, and other valuables. So he was doing this on purpose. He was doing it on purpose. He wasn't just after a good time. No, he wanted to prey on the vulnerable. Oh. And this became the way that he would make his living. I had read that he was in construction before this and then was like, hey, this is way more fun and easier to do. So this was how he made his living. This is a dirtbag move. Totally dirtbag. The unsuspecting women who Raymond targeted were often too embarrassed to report that they had been gullible enough to be taken for a ride by Raymond or that they were desperate enough to place an ad in the Lonely Hearts in the first place. Oh, I could totally see that. So unfortunately, he continued to get away with these antics. Raymond felt that giving these women a few weeks with his love 
was all the payment they needed. Are you kidding me? <laughs> nope. <laughs> That's what he would say. Yeah. A few weeks oh, of him that boy. his love was all the payment they needed. But remember, he's this Spanish lover with black magic. So who knows? I doubt the women felt that way. Yeah. But that's the story he was sticking to. That's how maybe he justified it. Wouldn't it be funny, though, if that they were like, yep, it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Take my car. Take my money. <laughs> Give me some love, honey. I doubt it. I don't think that was what was happening. No. In 1947, Raymond began writing to a woman named Jane Lucilla Thompson. Jane was separated from her husband and an easy target for Raymond. By October of that year, Jane agreed to meet Raymond. They decided to take a cruise together to Spain. While in Spain, Raymond had the nerve to introduce Jane to his wife. He was still married to her. What? The gall. Can you imagine being his wife? He shows back up in Spain with... With another woman. With another woman. How did he introduce them? Like, I, here's my wife? I don't know. And what is so bizarre about that is reportedly at first, the two women got along and were seen out with Raymond having dinners together. Oh, he did have some black magic then. He did. However, on November 7th of 1947, some type of altercation took place between Raymond's wife and mistress. Oh, I wonder what kind of altercation. Right? It's never a good idea. (laughs) Jane and Raymond were reportedly arguing at the hotel later that evening. And then Raymond was seen running away from the hotel later that night. Jane's body was found the next morning in their room. Her cause of death was unknown. They later suspected poisoning and exhumed Jane's body, but by then Raymond had fled Spain and returned to the U.S. Oh, they didn't make the connection to him right away? Not right away. Okay. Mm -hmm. Once back in America, Raymond created false documents saying that Jane had left all her possession to Raymond Fernandez. This included her New York City apartment, where Jane's mother was also living. Raymond confiscated it along with all her possessions. We're assuming he murdered this woman, took all her stuff, kicked mama out on the streets, and now he has this nice New York City apartment. And if he's affording like cruises and stuff like that, he must be making a pretty good living off these women. Oh, yeah. Like prior to Jane. For sure. He picks them out carefully. Raymond continued to pull off this ruse with other women until the fateful day in which he answered the Lonely Hearts ad placed by Martha Beck and their two dirtbag lives collided. But isn't it so crazy? You know, like we hear the story about Martha, what's led her up to place this Lonely Hearts ad. And then Raymond, what he's been doing up until the point of answering that Lonely Hearts ad. Yeah, hers is almost innocently like, I want to find love. And his is total dirtbag, calculating and manipulative and all selfish. Yeah, this is where I pray on my victims to swindle them out of their fortunes. After I left my wife and four kids and a dead body in Spain. Yeah, so Martha does not know what's about to happen. I'll ask you at the end if you still think she's a dirtbag or not. Okay. (laughs) All right. Martha and Raymond started to write letters back and forth to one another in December of 1947, the month after Jane was found dead. So he wasted no time. Raymond was the only one to respond to Martha's ad, and she was desperate for love. Raymond told Martha all the things that she wanted to hear. He was a businessman. He had left his home country to come to America to make a life for himself. And he had a New York apartment that was just too big for him. But he hoped to one day have a wife to share it with. Mm. What about her two kids? Her kids are with her. Knowing that Martha was a nurse, he wrote to her, quote, I know you have a full heart with a great capacity for comfort and love. The truth was he thought she would be loaded because she was a nurse. (laughs) (laughs) Melissa's laughing (laughs) because she's a nurse. (laughs) Joke's on him. This is the 40s, and maybe not a lot of women even have professions and oh, careers, right? That is true. And she's working as a nurse, so he's like just seeing mm-hmm. dollar signs at this point. 
Martha was head over heels. She finally met someone who didn't care about her size and was interested in her. Unbeknownst to her, all Raymond was interested in was her supposed assets. That is all he ever was interested in. He didn't care if his victims were old or young, curvy or thin, tall or short. He just wanted to steal from them. They could have been green for all he cared. (laughs) Their relations started with Raymond's usual tactics, writing letters back and forth, complimenting and being sexually suggestive and making plans to meet. Raymond usually asked the women to send him a lock of their hair. Martha thought this was so romantic and gladly sent him a large lock of her hair doused in perfume. The real reason that Raymond asked for the lock of hair was to perform a voodoo ritual with it to make the women whose hair it was find him irresistible. Oh, that's his old black magic. Yeah. He'd ask them for pictures and that kind of stuff, but he needed the lock of hair to perform this one ritual to make him irresistible. Ooh la la. How about just be a good guy? Because good guys are pretty irresistible, actually. Yeah, if you could just be a decent human being, that's attractive. Finally, Raymond decided that they should meet. He took the train to Pensacola, Florida, on December 28th, 1947. Martha met him at the train station. They went back to her place, and Raymond made his moves repeatedly. Martha was instantly in love. She was smitten. She finally found her Romeo, who loved her for her. After only a few days, Raymond realized that Martha didn't have the kind of money that he thought she did. (laughs) And at this point, Martha wanted to get married, and Raymond wanted the next train out of Pensacola. Oh, no. (laughs) Can you just see all of this happening? Oh, no. (laughs) He told Martha that he had business to attend to and return to New York, but that he would be back. Oh, of course he would. He's just stringing her along. Martha thought that he was coming back and that they would start their lives together. However, a couple of weeks later, Martha received a letter from Raymond saying that it was over. Martha was so devastated that she attempted suicide again. Mm. When Raymond found this out, he agreed to let Martha come and visit him in New York, where they reportedly spent two glorious weeks together. By her accounts. Well, I think by all accounts. It was a very highly sexual driven two weeks. We'll just put it at that. Okay. (laughs) It was a good romp vacation. So is he going to talk her into luring in women? Because she at the, still at this point sounds pretty innocent. You're going to hate her in a minute. Okay. I promise. <laughs> when Martha returned home, she was fired from her job. I don't <gasps> know if it was from leaving for those two weeks, but she got home and got fired. Oh, no. So she packed up her things and went back to New York to be with Raymond. Oh, no. Even bigger. Oh, no. Right? <laughs> she just showed up at his door at West 139th Street on January 18th, 1948, with all her stuff and her two kids in tow. Raymond at first wanted to just get rid of her. She would cramp his catfishing style. But the truth was, he had started to enjoy Martha and how well she took care of him. He told her she could stay, but that the kids had to go. So ladies, what do you do if a man tells you this? Well, back then they actually sent the kids away. (laughs) Well, just one week later, Martha surrendered her daughter and her son to the New York Salvation Army, (gasps) abandoning them to be with her new Latin lover. How old were they at the time? They were just little. They were like four and two years old. Oh, okay. Now that was a dirtbag move. Right? Dirtbag mom alert. Yeah. I read reports that her daughter, Willa Dean, was eventually adopted and her name was changed to Carmen, but I never read anything about what happened to her son. Now that it was just the two of them, Raymond told Martha about his cons. And Martha decided that she was in, that she could help him pull off his schemes. Because she just loved him so much she that did. she had to keep him happy. Yeah. She's like, well, I can do that. And she's a storyteller. Oh, true. Right? She's... She knows how to con people. She conned a whole town. She did con a whole town. So she's not opposed to lying. Raymond figured that because Martha had gone to the extreme of giving up her children for him, he could trust her with his secrets. That's a valid assumption. And it was true. Yeah. He was right. The two were now ready to get to work. 
Raymond couldn't really seduce women with Martha as his girlfriend, so they came up with the plan that Martha would pose as his sister or his sister-in-law. She's not Spanish. No, she's not. So the sister-brother thing isn't going to work very well, is it? No, people do believe that she's his sister in some oh. of the accounts. More commonly, it does say that it was his sister-in-law. But yeah, I know that there were some that were sister. Hmm. This would help to make the other women feel more comfortable being around Raymond. The idea being that with another woman being there, they would feel safer. And this false sense of security sadly seems to work for a lot of couple killers. A lot of the ones I've researched anyways, with having that woman there, you know, especially young girls would feel less threatened. Yeah, that's true. And I wonder too, if it threw them off even less too, because of her appearance. Oh, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he's this attractive Spanish man and she's reportedly a little less attractive, you know, comparatively. So she's less attractive. So they're not picking her up as a threat on any level, right? Even no. if she is a sister-in-law, they don't think that she is a threat as another love interest because right. of how she looks. And she's a woman. So she creates this atmosphere of a less threatening environment. Absolutely. Interesting. So it was kind of a perfect ruse for them. Mm -hmm. The new couple picked out their victims through the Lonely Hearts ads. Martha had one rule that Raymond could not consummate his relationship with any of the women. She'll get jealous. Yeah, she is a very jealous woman. Yeah. But who wouldn't be? <laughs> Do you want your boyfriend consummating his relationship, even if they are a con? Esther Hen was their first victim from Southern Pennsylvania. Raymond used his usual tactics to reel her in. And on February 28th of 1948, Raymond and Esther were married at the county clerk's office in Fairfax, Virginia. They took her back to New York. Raymond tried to get her to sign over all her insurance policies and her teacher's pension fund to him, but she refused. Good job. Yeah. That's because she's an educated woman. That's right. Esther ended up fleeing, but Raymond kept her car and hundreds of her dollars. And she probably counted herself lucky. Well, looking back, she absolutely would. Yeah. Yeah. They get married and all of a sudden he wants all her stuff, all her money. And she's like, mm, see you later. I'm envisioning how they're going about trying to get her to sign over all of her money without consummating this marriage. Right? <laughs> yeah. And her teacher's pension fund. Yeah. So I know it's all over, but I'm not having sex with you yet. Right. She's like, uh, I work for that, buddy. Yeah. See ya. But he was quite the romancer because he got her to marry him. Mm -hmm. But she was smart. And I'm sure looking back, can you imagine being her and afterwards finding out yeah. that he's murdered some of these women? Yeah, that would be pretty scary. It was her intellect or her intuition? Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. It's both. It's always both. It's always both. On August 14th, 1948, Raymond married a woman named Myrtle Young from Green Forest, Arkansas. They were married in Cook County, Illinois. Martha was worried about them having sex. So she slept in the bed with the newlyweds. And understandably, Myrtle was not happy about this. Yeah, no kidding. She's like, why is your sister here in our bed or your sister-in-law? <laughs> that is so weird. Right? To calm Myrtle down, Raymond gave her a heavy dose of drugs. The pair robbed her of her money and then put her on a bus back to Arkansas. <laughs> the police had to carry her off the bus when she got there. And the next day, sadly, she died in a hospital <gasps> in Little Rock. Oh, no. He'd overdone it, hey? Yeah. Do you know if that was the intention for her to just die later? I don't know. I think they just tried to drug her and get rid of her. I don't think he was intending to kill mm -hmm. her, to be honest, because then why put her on a bus? Yeah. I think they just drugged her, take all her stuff, put her on the bus and send her home. I'm still trying to come up with a conversation that they would have about how, why the sister or sister-in-law is in their bed. Isn't that in hilarious? In their wedding bed. I know. Oh. Yeah, I could just see her too, like wiggling her way right in between them. Like, <laughs> sorry, guys. I had a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he was saying, we're going to move. We'll get our own place. But it was a one-bedroom apartment. Oh, this New York okay. apartment. Yeah. So there wasn't another room. 
The two of them managed to steal $4,000 from Myrtle, which is about $46,000 US dollars today, or like 58000 Canadian. Wow, that's pretty good. It is. And did it say how long he dated her for before they married? No. Okay. I was trying to figure out, like, that's a pretty good paycheck then. Right. And well, it wouldn't have been that long because he was with a different woman in February of that yeah. same year, and they were married by August. Yeah, that's quick. It is quick. The duo continued to scam an assortment of women out of their money wherever they went. They continued on with this trend. Things would take a darker turn when the couple set their sights on a 66-year-old widow named Janet Fay. Janet lived in a large apartment in Albany, New York, and had a decent amount of money in her bank account, so she was a perfect victim. I'm thinking about that marriage bed. <laughs> and she's like almost twice his age. Siege. Yeah. <laughs> but remember when I said in the beginning? He doesn't he didn't care. care. Old, young, yeah. curvy, thin. They could be green, remember? <gasps> Her family had warned her about writing letters in the Lonely Hearts Club, but she was searching for love. Mm -mm. Janet was a devout Catholic who attended church regularly, and Raymond used this to his advantage. He made himself sound more religious than he was in his letters. Because she was religious, Raymond had to behave like a gentleman. He courted her with flowers and spent time discussing religious things with her. And Martha posed as a perfect pretend chaperone. This worked, because before long, Janet agreed to marry him. Oh, wow. Getting ready to move to Long Island with Raymond, Janet collected around $6,000 in cash and checks of her money, which would be about $70,000 US dollars or $87,000 Canadian. Wow. So this is worth the work for them, yeah. right? To court her and we're going to act all religious and proper with this one. Raymond and Martha have differing accounts of what happened on the night of January 4th, 1949, and both stories seem to change a bit in their accounts. I was able to find the court transcript summaries for Raymond's trial, which is always fascinating. So I'll go over what happened according to Martha and Raymond's testimonies. It went something like this. They arrived at their new apartment in Long Island, had dinner, all three of them together, and then turned in for the night. There was only one bedroom in the apartment, so Janet and Martha were supposed to share the bed and Raymond was going to sleep on the couch. Janet was wanting to consummate her marriage with Raymond. Janet was frustrated because Martha was always around. <laughs> and Martha was jealous about the attention that Raymond gave to Janet. Martha woke up between 3 and 4 a.m. to get a drink of water. On her way into the kitchen, she saw that Janet had stripped naked and was waiting for Raymond to get out of the bathroom and return to the couch. Martha said that she, quote, was burning up with jealousy and anger. Janet, allegedly at her wit's end with Martha, told her that she could no longer live with her and Raymond and told her that she was the most brazen bee she'd ever seen. Oh. At first, Martha claims that after this, she blacked out and doesn't remember what happened. She said when she came to, Raymond was holding her by the shoulders and shaking her. And once alerted, she saw Janet laying at her feet slumped over a suitcase with a bleeding head wound. Oh, so she just went crazy. This is what she says at first. Okay. Raymond said he heard them arguing and then came into the room to see Janet slumped over and blood everywhere. He said Martha was in a daze just standing there by Janet's body. In her fit of rage, Martha had grabbed a ball-peen hammer and struck Janet in the head twice. Police believe that Raymond finished her off by strangling Janet with a white scarf that was later found around the victim's neck. Raymond said he didn't strangle her, but only tied the scarf around her neck to try and catch all the blood spilling out of her head. According to a later confession of Martha's, it is believed that Martha struck Janet on the back of the head and that she didn't die at first. She lay there moaning, and so Raymond, wanting to keep her quiet, first drank some whiskey and then tried to strangle her with his bare hands. But when that didn't work, he wrapped the white scarf around her neck and tied a knot. Raymond slid the hammer handle through the knot and twisted, oh. creating a tourniquet and kept twisting it until she no longer made a noise. 
Martha and Raymond kept changing their stories, but it seems like this was the most plausible account. When asked what happened after Janet was dead, Martha said she straightened up and then said to Raymond, quote, Oh my gosh, darling, what have we done? The pair tried to stuff Janet's body into a trunk, but she wouldn't fit. So they put her body in the closet to go out and purchase a large enough trunk. They also made an unsuccessful attempt to cash a $2,000 check. The couple searched for a house to rent where they could hide the body. Raymond said a house that, quote, had a yard or garage or cellar or something where I can dig a hole in the ground and put her body. They found a house at South Ozon Park and rented it. So this is very elaborate to try and hide this body. Let's rent a house. <laughs> so bizarre. It is. I'm sure there was lots of other ways to get rid of the body, <laughs> but they decided let's rent a house. And they're making good money. Yeah, I guess. You know, they're probably rolling in it at this point. So why not? We'll rent a house, hide some bodies there. But isn't her family going to be missing her? Well, they will. And they do. Oh. Ten days after she was murdered, after moving the body around, they take her from place to place. <laughs> they, do. they even put her in Raymond's sister's house for a while. That would smell so bad. I know. It took them 10 days to get this all figured out. There was not some forethought in that because I don't think it was premeditated for no. Martha to kill her. That mm. wasn't the original plan. And it sounds like they both were describing her as dazed and she said she blacked out. Right. So that does sound like a crime of passion. I think it was. I don't know for sure if she blacked out, but because she is a good storyteller. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Raymond broke through the cement floor at their new rental and dug a hole for Janet's body. He placed her body in the ground, covered it with dirt, and then filled the hole with fresh cement. When Janet's body was later exhumed, a medical examiner performed an autopsy on her body and concluded that the victim had two puncture wounds in her head. Both broke through the skull and entered the cranial cavity. The victim would have eventually died from these wounds, but her larynx was fractured from strangulation after the injuries to the head. The fractured larynx would have caused death within a few minutes, making her cause of death strangulation rather than the blunt force trauma. Oh, interesting. So their stories match what the evidence said. It does. So that's why I think that one is a little more plausible. Yeah. After Janet's body was buried, the pair cashed all the checks and typed out a letter to send to Janet's family telling them that she was happy with her new love and was moving to Florida. So they typed out a letter as Janet. As Janet to send to her family because they don't mm -hmm. want them to come looking for her. And we've seen this in other cases too, where they try to write a letter to act like they're the person that they've just killed to get people off their trail. Well, that's what Belle did, right? Yeah, it's really Belle vibes, mm -hmm. isn't it? Janet's family knew right away that she did not write this letter. She did not own a typewriter and didn't know how to type. They immediately contacted the police and Raymond and Martha fled the area in hunt of their next victim. They found their next victim in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Raymond had already been writing letters to another widow, 41-year-old Delphine Downing. Delphine had a two-year-old daughter named Raynell. Raymond told her his name was Charles Martin and that he loved children. After several weeks, they decided to meet. She didn't seem to mind that he would be bringing his sister Martha with him. Delphine took to Raymond and loved how he was with her daughter. Before long, Raymond was having sexual relations with Delphine. Oh, no. Guess how happy Martha was about this. Not very happy. No, nope, this was her one rule. Apparently, one morning, Delphine walked in on Raymond in the bathroom without his toupee on. <gasps> she didn't know he was balding. She got upset and felt like Raymond was being deceitful. And I thought, oh, honey, if you only knew. <laughs> the toupee is just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Unintended. <laughs> in an attempt to calm her down, Martha convinced Delphine to take some sleeping pills. Martha seemed calm at this moment, but inside, Martha was raging about the love of her life sleeping with another woman. 
After Delphine took the sleeping pills, her daughter started to get upset, possibly sensing that something wasn't right with her mom. Unable to calm the two-year-old down, Martha snapped and began to choke the toddler until she became unconscious. Oh no. She hadn't killed the child, but Raymond was furious because when Delphine would awake, she would see the bruises all over her daughter's neck and likely go to the police. They're starting to scramble a little bit with their stories. They are. Martha yelled at Raymond to do something, so he went and got Delphine's late husband's handgun. He wrapped it in a blanket to weaken the sound, placed the end of the gun against Delphine's head, and pulled the trigger. The bullet entered her brain, killing her instantly. Knowing what to do this time, Raymond went into Delphine's basement and dug a hole, threw her body inside it, and covered the grave with cement. Martha cleaned up the blood, and then the pair spent the following couple of days cashing checks and collecting Delphine's money. Baby Raynell was crying a lot and was refusing to eat. Well, she had just been strangled. She probably had a sore throat. <laughs> yeah, she probably did. This was wearing on Raymond, and so he told Martha to take care of the problem. Martha took the wee girl and drowned her in a metal tub filled with water. Oh, I don't know how you could do that as a mother. No. Well, like, she abandoned her own children. I know, but I was just thinking, like, even just that interaction with that little girl, wouldn't that bring back thoughts of her own children? You would think. And stir up emotion? Yeah. So do you think she's a dirtbag now, Melissa? Yeah, she's getting to be more of a dirtbag for sure. More of a dirtbag. She's <laughs> full on dirtbag. She's won the badge. <laughs> Raymond dug another grave and Raynell was buried next to her mother in their once loving home. After the baby was taken care of, instead of fleeing the scene, our killer couple decided instead to go catch a movie. What? Popcorn and a gallon of pop fixes everything, right? <laughs> it does for me, but, but I've never murdered anybody. <laughs> Delphine had been close to her neighbors, so when they hadn't seen her or her child in a few days, they luckily became suspicious and called the police. Just as Raymond and Martha were packing their stuff and getting ready to go, on February 28, 1949, there was a knock on the door, and when Raymond opened the door, he was met with officers of Kent County, Michigan. Oh, wow. So they caught them just in the nick of time. Yeah. Once arrested, the police told the killer duo that they should confess in Michigan, because Michigan didn't have the death penalty. But if they were to be tried in New York, where Janet's body was found, they would likely be put to death. This worked, and both Raymond and Martha confessed. However, the cops pulled a fast one and they were sent to New York to be tried, <laughs> which makes me laugh when this happens, because it does sometimes. The media went wild over this case. It was sex, lies, and murder after all. The couple quickly became known as the Lonely Hearts Killers. Raymond said, quote, I'm no average killer. I have a way with women, a power over them. The power he claimed to get from his voodoo practices. His black magic. That's right. Raymond's confession lasted several hours, resulting in him admitting to having killed as many as 17 women. Oh. Yeah. And it is suspected that the number of his victims could be as high as 20. So he had killed them before, too. Or he wasn't just taking their money. Or it could have been with him and Martha that there was more that they did together as oh, okay. well. Okay. Mm hmm. Both of them signed a 73-page confession. They confessed together without legal counsel. That's unusual, isn't it? It is unusual. The media in New York fixated on Martha's size. I told you we were going to come back yeah. here. She seemed to get ridiculed for having an above-average body weight almost as much or even more as she was ridiculed for her actions. Martha was deeply hurt and wrote letters from prison to the media informing them that the way they were treating her was basically cruel and unfair. <laughs> She wrote, quote, I'm still a human, feeling every blow inside, even though I have the ability to hide my feelings and laugh. But that doesn't say my heart isn't breaking from the insults and humiliation of being talked about as I am. Oh, yes, I wear a cloak of laughter. OK, so nobody should be made fun of for their size. And that is super sad. But honestly, <laughs> she is feeling humiliated. 
Yeah, she's feeling picked on. She's been picked on about her weight. Can you imagine, though, okay, you become a serial killer and they're fixating on how big you are, your dress size, instead of what you've done? I guess. Maybe that was her breaking point with it. Like, you guys, I can't even, like, murder people and get talked about for something different than my weight. Oh, that would be irritating. Right? Okay, I see it from that point now. Okay. And we don't feel sorry for Martha in any way, but this did shed some light on how, as a woman, she was judged and objectified because of how she looked. I did read some of the terms that they used to describe her, and they were pretty terrible. Journalists should be reporting her actions and not guesstimating her weight and calling her fatphobic names. Because what's the point of that? Do better, reporters. That is shocking that that's where they focused on. Wasn't their victims? Wasn't their... Yeah. It wasn't like what their she... their crimes. Had... Yeah. It wasn't that this woman drowned a two-year-old or hit a woman over the head with a hammer. It was like, oh, look how big she is. And really, she's not that big. She's not that big. Yeah. No. And they were trying to guess like how much she weighs and they were throwing out numbers. Oh, she probably weighs this much. And who cares? That is bizarre. Yeah. Their trial for Janet began in New York on June 28, 1949. They were appointed a young Manhattan attorney named Herbert E. Rosenberg. Usually it was a violation of ethics to have one attorney represent two defendants, but the courts allowed it. Because they requested it? I assume. They did their confession together. Well, they were lovers. They were. They did everything together. They did. Murder. Fraud. Mayhem. Might as well confess and go to trial together. Sex lies. There's no videotapes at this time. There's none. I know. There's letters. (laughs) Sex lies and letters. (laughs) And voodoo magic. Yeah. Did that hit the media too? That would have totally. Oh, yeah, it does. Oh, okay. Yeah. This was just a sensation. The trial took place at Bronx Supreme Court, which was located near Yankee Stadium. It sounded like the trial was quite the spectacle. Raymond and Martha would change their statements, and at one point, when prosecutor Edwin Robinson was yelling at Raymond the list of names of the women that he murdered, Martha could no longer take it and jump from her seat yelling out that, quote, Mr. Fernandez is not deaf. Oh, she was defending him? She was totally defending him during the trial. She's still like love struck. Yeah, they both are. Well, do you think he's in love with her at this time? We'll get into that. But he does right at the very end. Still professes that he loves her. Oh, okay. So he's not just using her anymore. No, they are in love now. Mm. I guess these kinds of things bind you together. (laughs) The jury had to listen to the gruesome details from the 73 page confession that the pair had made. Between the gory details and the sexual ones, New York Times said, quote, unauthorized persons were not permitted to loiter outside the courtroom. Many of the would-be spectators, predominantly women, did without lunch in order to not lose their places. Oh, wow. So it was drawing in crowds. And that's why they had to move to this court by Yankee Stadium was because it was bigger and would hold more people. But there was people outside. I guess it was a huge heat wave at the time and people were passing out from the heat. But they all wanted to find out. They were all so curious this was, you know, unheard of then they were true crime fans they were yeah would we have been there in the stands and missing out on our lunch so that we didn't lose our spot (laughs) when martha was questioned regarding abandoning her children it was reported that she broke down she was questioned for three days and when she described her sex life with raymond and how they committed certain acts connected to the practice of voodooism the crowds tried to rush the courtroom It took two dozen officers to contain them. Oh, wow. She's a good storyteller. (laughs) She really is. Maybe she should have become an author. (laughs) Talk show host or something. Those sleazy ones. We have detected that is a lie. (laughs) 44 days after the trial started on August 18th, 1949, Judge Pecora gave a five-hour charge, which is basically like instructions. And the jury of 10 men and two women were to deliberate. Deliberations did take some time. The jury started at an 11 to 1 vote for conviction. At 9.45 p.m., the jury asked for a reading of Raymond's confession as well as a clearer definition on the term premeditation. 
They deliberated throughout the night and came to a conclusion by 8.30 the next morning. So they didn't sleep. They just kept going. Ironically, the spectators had gone home because they thought the jury would continue to deliberate throughout the morning, so the courtroom was fairly empty when they came to a consensus. The jury found them both guilty of first-degree murder for Janet, Delphine, and Raynell. Hmm. They were given the sentence of death a few days later on August 22nd. They were scheduled to die by the electric chair. Together? Side by side? Together. What? Yep. (laughs) I was being facetious, but... No, no. And originally they were scheduled for like October 10th, but it kept getting appealed and kept getting pushed. Okay. Both were taken to Sing Sing Prison by the Hudson River. They even got to be in prison together? In the same prison. What? When does that happen? Isn't it romantic, this whole story? (laughs) Martha listed her brother and three sisters on her visitor list, as well as her two children, but I didn't read any reports of anyone visiting her. Doesn't mean they didn't, but I didn't read any. There were some reports, however, that Raymond exchanged some letters with his first wife in Spain while incarcerated. The press would continue to report on this famous killer couple right up until their execution. I won't go into a lot of details, but they would write letters back and forth, displaying a love, but sometimes a hate relationship with one another. They would get angry (laughs) sometimes. In their final moments, however, they would profess their love for one another. Oh, well, that's just a real relationship then. It's true. (laughs) It's not always sunshine and rainbows. Raymond's last words were, quote, I want to shout it out. I love Martha. What do the public know about love? Martha's final statement was, quote, My story is a love story, but only those tortured by love can know what I mean. Imprisonment in the death house has only strengthened my feeling for Raymond. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's right to the very end. Star-crossed lovers. Yep. Raymond's last meal was an onion omelet, french fries, chocolate, and a Cuban cigar. <laughs> I always want to know their last meals for some reason. I don't know. Martha chose fried chicken, but no wings french fries, and a lettuce and tomato salad. Their executions took place on the same day, March 8, 1951, at the Sing Sing prison. Martha was 31 and Raymond was 37 years old at the time of their deaths. Raymond was executed first, followed by Martha. It was said that right before Martha mouthed the words, so long, but no sound exited her body. Two other inmates had been executed right before them. John King and Richard Power. The first execution was at 11 o'clock p.m. and the last one, Martha, was completed by 11.24. Oh, that was quick. Yeah. I thought, did the chair even have time to cool down in between? (laughs) That would be kind of unnerving to get into the electric chair and it's already warm. warm. Yeah. This was the first quadruple execution since 1947. Wow. Martha was buried in Milton, Santa Rosa, Florida. So back to her home. And Raymond is buried in Ossining, Westchester County, New York, which is the prison cemetery. Mm. And that is the perverse story of fraud and romance that led to murder by the hands of two sadistic, lonely hearts smitten with one another, Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck. So there you go. If you didn't have a Valentine's date this year, maybe count yourself lucky. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to still determine if it's an okay thing to get hooked on romance novels because that's what Martha did, right? She did. Yeah. And then she was totally, she was easily manipulated. Like she plays her part for sure, but I feel like Raymond did manipulate her a bit. Well, she was just so focused on having that story, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was her fairy tale romance. Yeah. From all of her books. Yeah. That turned out to be a thriller instead. (laughs) Not the kind of thrills we want for Valentine's Day. No. (laughs) Well, that's it for this week. Join us again next week when Melissa will have another riveting case. 
It is actually a pretty cool one. But if there is a case that you're ever wanting us to cover, please send us a message. Yeah, let us know on our Facebook page. Yeah, or you can even send us an email, which is in our show notes, which is just a little blurb underneath the episode content. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Everybody's always wondering what those are. <laughs> our show notes, yeah. When you click on the episode, underneath is our show notes. And it has links to our Facebook, our Instagram, and also has our email address there. And as always, we love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you have a wonderful week ahead. And maybe go easy on the romance novels. (laughs) See ya. Bye. Which and can the- lead to murder. <laughs> murder. <laughs> I am your captain. <laughs> Buckle in. Get to the back of the bus. We're filling this train up. Planes, trains, and automobiles, people. <laughs> oh, I'm like talking stupid today. <laughs> I'm sorry. You said brutal. And so I was like, oh, they must do really bad things then. Well, they do because we're talking about <laughs> murder. <laughs> I'm not talking about them going to the children's hospital and volunteering. So like on Tinder, they're looking for big. So on Tinder, they're looking. You're weird. Or give or give or give or give or give or give me a, a money. <laughs> or give me a story. <laughs> abandoning them, abandoning them, abandoning, abandoning them. My husband's a carpenter and I don't know. Hello? Whoa! <laughs> that sounded like gunshots. Hey, is it a ball peen hammer? Is it a what? See, proof he's a carpenter. <laughs> is it a ball peen hammer or a ball pen hammer? Ball peen. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, goodbye. Thanks. Well, at least I know he's at work. <laughs> Come on. I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. We are after different thrills on Valentine's Day. (laughs) We don't know what we're doing, (laughs) but we're doing it anyway. (laughs) Can't they just do our work for us? Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.